Okay, if you would please turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 2. In a little bit, I will be reading from Genesis 2. Let's pray. Father, in light of what you reveal in Genesis 2 and in Genesis 3, it's so good to sing that song. Jesus paid it all. All. And washed the blood that was on our hands of sin as white as snow. And so to that end, I ask that this Genesis passage be a stepping stone for worship and adoration and thanksgiving to you for your Son in such a great salvation. Amen. This is the seventh week in the series, God's Purpose in Redemptive History. In our journey through God's timeline in the Scripture, we have gone all the way through, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and unfolded that through chapter 1 and into chapter 2. Finally this morning, we've arrived at the fall of man in the garden. What we've seen over the last four weeks is that God, by His very nature, is totally, infinitely, perfectly complete and contented and needless. Then He created Not to get something he didn't have, he has no needs. But to overflow with the beauty and the joy and the contentedness and the fullness of his being as Father, Son, and Spirit. Therefore, thirdly, how shall we, creatures made in his image, relate to him? One way. We go to Him, not to help Him out, but because He is the source, the eternal source of all pleasure and all joy and holiness perfectly. So we go to God to get. Because that's why He created us, for one. He loves to meet that need. And then fourthly, we saw how do we relate to one another. By constantly taking that fullness and laying it down horizontally and meeting others' needs with His supply called benevolent love. Now, the reason I did that is because I find those basic foundational ideas to be hugely important as we unfold the rest of redemptive history. And particularly this morning as we approach Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, and into chapter 3. Over the next few weeks, we will be in chapter 2 and chapter 3 of Genesis, where what we will see 
are these three things. The fall of humankind into sin. Secondly, God's judgment on that sin. And then, thirdly, and it's right there in chapter 3, God's mercy, His promise of redemption from sin to make for Himself a people. That's this week and the next two Sundays that I am preaching in this series. And so let's begin this morning. We're dealing with the fall. Chapter 2 of Genesis. I'm going to begin with verse 8 and I'm going to edit out a few verses just for time's sake. As I begin with verse 8, Genesis 2. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there He put the man whom He had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely or freely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bone. And flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked. And we're not ashamed. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, inspired, infallible Word. Notice, back at verses 16 and 17, there is the command to obey in order not to die. To avoid 
death, which would be the opposite of all the pleasures and the good stuff that God benevolently gives. It would bring them into a state of misery. Then, in verses 18 to 25, God created a horizontal relationship for Adam, for man. Now, according to the last few weeks, I've argued that vertically, you got Adam, he should be content in God. He should walk in the cool of the day and fellowship with his Maker. But the text says he needed a horizontal relationship. It is not good that the man should be alone, obviously. Because the vertical of for the creature, vertically towards his creator, being filled needs to overflow horizontally to others. See, it's one thing to view the Grand Canyon and from it derive a type of joy, wonder, awe. And it's the canyon that's the object that is causing it. And it's good. But it's another thing to have someone who also has the capacity, some human beings right now don't, I don't get it, but they have the capacity to be as odd as you are by that canyon, and they come alongside, and you share it, and you talk about it. And then you say, well, now no, just shut up. Let's have an hour of no one talk. And, but you're there together on a horizontal level, enjoying the vertical of the canyon, which is doubly joyful. Isn't it wonderful? Let us go down the Brady Bunch trail. And go all the way to the cliff and look down at the river. Let's do this. Let's get swallowed up in the canyon together. It is even more blessed to share that, to give that to another than to merely receive. Because our joy in the object who is God or the canyon is completed by sharing it. Contemplate what John the Apostle said years later, the guy who hung out with Jesus. And he writes a general epistle to the church, and there's some big, huge theological stuff in 1 John. But this is essentially how he opens it up in verse 4. And we, we are writing these things. So that our joy may be complete. Strange. But true. And John's not afraid to avoid it. There's something about the beauty of the gospel 
and being saved by it and being dwelt by the Spirit that is frustrated when you share it and others look and say, I see not what you see. It's boring. But then it's thrilled when it sees that person has come to Christ or that person is a brother and sister in Christ and isn't He beautiful? It is a good motivation to want to fellowship with the body of Christ, to want to talk about the same old things again and again and again, to complete your joy. And so God says it's not good for the man to be alone. There needs to be this overflowing. So, here's a cow. It's a cow, and He names it. There's a dog. There's a bird. There's a giraffe. And it doesn't work. Because they're not made in the image of God with the ability to stand at the edge of the Grand Canyon and say, Wow! And so God creates the woman from the man. And there they are. And now they are both in the position to obey the first and the second commandment. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And to overflow it. Love your neighbor. Love your wife. Love your husband. Love your children children's children, cousins, and it's going to spread out. Love them as you would love yourself. It is an appropriate thing to experience the pleasure of looking at the Grand Canyon or Yosemite Valley and want others to share in that. Pleasure. And God creates that way. And we see the culmination of it in the last verse of chapter 2. They had no shame. And the man and the woman in vertical relationship with God, there is no emptiness in them or any sin that has happened and so they're both naked, utterly exposed. But their heads are in the clouds with God. And thus, they are not ashamed. And so this is a narrative. It's a story. It's a second creation narrative here in Genesis. And it's how the story is making the point that they were in harmony. They had joy. They were in utter dependence upon the Creator, the Lord God, and overflowing without shame toward each other as they would share. The main point of verse 8 to verse 25 of chapter 2 is that their nakedness produced no shame. Their complete 
They had no deficiency. They're in perfect harmony with God and with each other. And that leads to what is said next. The fall of chapter 3. The creation of man and woman, and it culminates this way. And the man and the wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Then the fall, and the culmination in verse 7 of chapter 3 reads this way. Then the eyes of both the man and the woman were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves because they were ashamed. In order to clothe their nakedness. So let's read the story of the fall. Chapter 3 of Genesis, verses 1 to 7. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But God said, You shall not eat the fruit of the tree that is in the midst or the middle of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she gave also some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then... The eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin cloths. The point is that sin, unbelief, turning from trusting their Creator happened. And they ceased to display God's goodness by their complete dependence and contentment upon Him. And the result, they knew everything's different now. And they were ashamed. They had an emptiness now, and they had a God-shaped vacuum. And so there are two major points that I want us to see in the fall this morning. 
First is original sin. Right there in the garden. And we'll get to that in a second. And then, secondly, to contemplate what is the nature of this sin that they committed and we sinners all commit. What is the essence of sin? So first, original sin. What we have just read is the fall of mankind. See, more than just those two persons, Adam and Eve, more than just those two were involved in what happened. But every person who would eventually come from them, including every one of us in here, since that fall, are affected. It has caused every one of us to come into existence as human beings with an inborn corruption of the heart which leads us to sin as soon as we are able to sin. The universal condition of humanity in sin is owing to what we just read. The fall. The choice of Adam. So I want to make two things clear then. One, God is the creator of the world and therefore He has the right and He has the power to use this world for His glory. Secondly, Romans 3.23 We have all sinned and fall short of God's glory. Those two truths, He's God, it's His universe, His creation, He has absolute sovereign rights to do with it what He will, and He will glorify His name. That truth with we are all sinners. They come together, and what emerges from them is this series. God's purpose in redemption. In redemptive history. To redeem what went wrong. So not only does every human being, except one, he comes later, Jesus, but not only therefore, other than Him, do we all sin, we do it because we are under the power of sin. See, it's not a fluke that, statistically speaking, 100% of human beings will sin. Little baby Jonah. What is he, a week and a half old now? Jonah will, no doubt about it, rebel, sin, disobey. It's going. We sin because of who we are. Our nature now is sinful. This is how the New Testament puts it in Ephesians 2. 
You and you were, before you became to Christ and came alive to God through him, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. By nature, under condemnation for our sin. Every one of us has come into this world with a depraved heart, a natural corruption of our will. The prophet Jeremiah meant everybody when he said, The heart is deceitful above all things. And desperately wicked. Who can know it? Okay. Where did all this come from? How did we get this way? The answer is Genesis 3, verses 1 to 7. In the moment of that catastrophic disobedience of Adam and Eve. She took and ate and gave some to her husband who's standing right there. And he ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And their innocence Vanished. Their eyes were opened. They knew they were naked. And they were ashamed. And then the Holy Spirit, if we're not clear on it, inspired the Apostle Paul to do an exposition of our text. And we find it in Paul's letter to the Romans in chapter 5. Now, I'm just going to quote the significant sayings of Paul from 5 for time's sake. This is what Paul says in verse 12. Sin came into the world through one man. And death came through that sin. Verse 15. Many, the human race, died through one man's trespass. Verse 16. The judgment following one trespass brought condemnation upon all. Verse 17, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through the one man. Verse 18, the trespass of one man led to condemnation for all men. 
Verse 19. By the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Theologically, in the history of the church, we call this original sin. It doesn't mean, oh yeah, that's the original. It, 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 does, it, it is the original sin, but it means original sin has taken human nature. There's only one humanity, one human nature represented with billions of persons who share that nature. But it means that through the first, the representative human, He plunged all of us in our human nature into sin. The universality of sin, ever all of us, we all know it, it is because of, and it is owing to, the fall of Adam. We are not sinners because we sin. There's a truth there, but you've got to hear me. No, no. We sin because we are sinners. It is our nature. That's the biblical reality, and that is the real experience of every single one of you in this room. Now, whether it's right or whether it is just for God to subject all people to Adam's condition because of Him, I'm born a sinner. Whether that is just or not, it hangs on whether God, as the Creator, has a right to establish a unity between Adam and all of his offspring, which would result in that fatal flaw being passed on from generation to generation. He does have that right. He has a right to do with His creation what He would choose to do. And which ultimately is to glorify His name. Now let me make two clarifying comments about this fall so far. In the fall of Adam, God did not add something to Adam. Okay, that's it. I'm going to create a ball of evil and I'm going to shove it into your soul. That's not what happened. He didn't add some principle of evil to Adam. The fall and the effects of it are due not to an addition that God gives, but to a loss. In the fall, God took from man the light by which he could see the glorious desirability and trustworthiness of the Creator. And without the light, in spiritual darkness, 
men and women are just like natural, earthbound creatures. Oh yeah, they have a soul. They have a spirit. But as, as John says in 1 John, the love of the world, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father. No, it's from the, it's from the world. And so, in other words, in the fall, all of the desires for what is actually beautiful and true were swallowed up in deception and in darkness. So God did not add these evil desires. They were willfully forfeited and a loss of the ability to see. To see, to appreciate. God as the eternal treasure that He is. And it's passed down. God simply put a distance between man and the light of His glory. That's the first thing. He didn't add something, it's a loss. Secondly, every one of us knows this. Our conscience witnesses strongly to us that we are accountable before God. And our experience as human beings witnesses that our hearts are corrupt toward God. We all know that we're prone to wander from God because of some fatal flaw at the core of our being. And I'm speaking to Christians now who are different now than they were before when they were only darkness. God raised you up through new birth. He shone the light, came back to see the beauty, the glory of Christ, and yet He leaves you here still with something different, new, an ability you didn't have to love Him, and you'll never do it perfectly down here because you still taste of that fatal flaw within the core of your being. And we all know we do it because we want to. When we turn from God, we choose to, we will to, and thus we know by such a principle we are accountable for our sin. Okay. Look, what I've just said now over the last 15 minutes, oh, as Christians, this is vital to grasp, to understand. For when you get to the Gospel, it'll start to make more sense. I don't like Adam being my representative. Do you like Jesus being your representative? 
You like it that Jesus became a human being? And in the garden of this world, walked in perfect trust in God's holy word and commandments, in perfect righteousness, where Adam fell, so that he would be your representative and his life lived will become yours. Okay. You can't have one without the other and be consistent. Nor can you have one without the other and be biblical. Oh, what a plan. Oh, what a gospel. All people sin due to the depravity of our hearts. And all people come into this world with this depraved heart. Because God established a unity between the first man, Adam, and all of his offspring, which would result in the spiritual death being passed on from generation to generation. That's the first major point of the fall. Original sin. And so now the second and the last what is the essence of that sin? So let's go back to chapter 3 of Genesis, the story of the fall, and notice the serpent, Satan. He has a strategy. And his strategy was to lead Eve on, to foster within her a sinful, unbelieving heart. And Eve began slowly to buy the lie that God is not really out for my good, for my Can I really trust Him for my future? For my contentment? For my fulfillment? And slowly the answer became no. No. So I want you to look as the conversation goes between Satan and Eve the restatements of what God had said clearly in chapter 2. So, in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, this is what God said. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may freely, freely eat of every tree in the garden. but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. All the rest, enjoy. Trust me. But don't eat. 
Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. And so, in chapter 3, the serpent starts off by misquoting God. What did God really say? You shall not eat of any of the trees of the garden. See, the narrator knows what he's doing. As Moses gets this. There's a point. It's just not a sloppy writing. He does it on purpose. God doesn't want you. Maybe he doesn't want you to really enjoy any of the fruits. God said you may freely eat of any tree. Satan said, God really said, you're not supposed to eat any tree. And then Eve replies. No, he didn't say that essentially. She says, and then in her reply, she left out a key word. The word freely. No, we can eat of any tree in the garden. And God said, you may freely eat. And sometimes emphasis. Right there hangs life and death. Right there hangs how do you view that person, God? And she left it out. And then her reply, in verse 3, because we already see her trust slipping. Yeah, you can eat of any tree, but not freely. And then she says, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree, that is in the middle of the garden. Neither shall you touch it. Where'd she get that? Tree of life was in the middle, midst. Where'd she get don't touch it? it, it the text never said that. It's not a slip again. It's showing that Eve is slipping. Middle, central, maybe. Point is, there's that central, most important tree. God says you can't have the best. Don't even touch it. So that the narrative is showing that Eve was feeling that God was not being fully benevolent. Maybe He really doesn't care. Maybe He's selfish and is holding back for me. And that's about where she's at. And then the serpent goes in for the kill. Verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, No, no. You will not surely die. Interpreted? God lied. Not true. But instead, see, God's got a motive that's hidden from you. 
And he really could not care less about your happiness. That's what he goes on to say. Treat it. You will not surely die. Because here, here's, the, here's the problem, Satan saying to her. God knows that when you eat of it, then your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan is saying, look, Eve, look, God doesn't want you to share in the joy that He has in being God. God really is a killjoy. So Eve, you need to disconnect yourself from Him. You've got to stop trusting when He says stuff like you will die. It's not true. He doesn't mean it. You need to go off and make yourself happy. Because He's not about your happiness. He's not for you. He's hiding your happiness that could be for you from you. And He doesn't want you to share what He has. So eat, Eve. The fall at its core consists in unbelief, meaning I don't trust God. we got to get this. The nature of sin is unbelief. And it is, in my mind, really important to say that clearly. If you just say it's disobedience, which it absolutely is, then you may miss the essence of that disobedience. And what causes it? Where it's coming from? Now, in the text, the forbidden tree was given a name because it stood for something. It was called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, that phrase in the Old Testament, in the, in the Hebrew Scripture, had a distinct meaning of good and evil. It refers to the ability to determine one's for oneself. I want to have it myself to determine what is good and what is evil. I want to be a grown-up, not a child. I want to be my own man, my own woman, to come into maturity, and now I autonomously will decide what is good, what is evil, what is helpful, what is harmful. This phrase, good and evil, God has it. Two times it's clear in chapter 3 of Genesis, in verse 5 and verse 22, God has the knowledge of good and evil. Later in the Scripture, in 1 Kings, there is a sovereign, Solomon. He's got a rule. He's got to make decisions. Okay, just get the term now, right? 
before, then we'll say, why is it thrown back into the Genesis account? He prays for the knowledge of good and evil. Prays for that I may decide justly as a judge, as a king, what is right, what is wrong. And in the book of Moses in Deuteronomy 1.39, little children not come of age yet, they're dependent. It is clearly states they do not have the knowledge of good and evil. They're children. They're dependent. They're not grown up. And thus, the Hebrew readers understood this expression to be that which mature adults possess. The knowledge of good and evil. A maturity, in other words, in which they were independent now, not dependents. And therefore they're responsible for their decisions of what they do. And therefore, this is used now to represent that tree. God says to the creature, to the man, to the woman, do not partake. Trust me. Don't partake. And therefore, what God was forbidding in saying, do not partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, was not some arbitrary fruit. But it was the fruit that would mean, I am now grown up. I now reject my childlike dependence upon God as the all-wise, all-caring Father who knows what is right and what is wrong. Thank you. I'm on my own. I will decide. And it is to put ourselves, therefore, in God's And that's what was appealing. Because that was sin as she's listening. You'll be like God. Yes. I want to be the sovereign. I want to determine. God gives all kinds of signs. No, I'm not going to go there. Sorry. Boom. We're going back. Met an edit in the midst of my. The command to not eat of that tree was simply saying, do not try to exchange roles with me, God. Do not try to aspire to that position of independence that I alone, God, possess. Stay dependent, trusting me. And so when a temptation comes, Satan knows exactly what he needed to say. You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil.
You don't need to be a child dependent upon God. And so, she took and says, yes, that's my motive. And she ate. She handed it to Adam, who was right there. And he ate. And their eating had a motive. And it was to spurn God. It was to go their own independent, self-sufficient way. At the very core of sin is the desire to not depend on God and His Word. But to be self-reliant, self-confident, and above all, self-determining. All of our sins flow from this inborn unwillingness to be like children and to trust our Heavenly Father to decide what is good for us and what is bad for us. That's why Jesus sat there and looked at full-blown adults and said, unless you turn and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And the result of the fall is that Adam and Eve did not get the happiness they so hoped for and were seeking. And that has been the human experience ever since. Oh, there are joys that are fleeting momentarily. But they did not get what they expected. But instead, they suddenly felt the horror of disconnection from the Creator and an emptiness, a God-shaped vacuum. They were like little children saying, I don't want mommy and daddy, and find themselves at 11 p.m. downtown Hollywood as a six-year-old, and it hits them. And they're empty, and they're afraid, and they're ashamed, and scared, and utterly feeling their inadequacy. And so they tried to cover up. That's the fall. Original sin, and that sin at its core is not trusting in the Creator. That He really, really is the God we have seen the last month. And He finds great pleasure and great joy in having His eternal, perfect joy beyond any other imaginable joy be your joy. Trust me. And so, as you come to the next verse all the way through chapter 3, we will see, not this morning, but in a couple weeks to come, God's response, His response of judgment and His response of mercy.
Because of love for His own glory, God had to be just and uphold His glory by just judgment in opposing those who scorn His benevolence, glory overflowing. And so we'll see He imposed misery on Eve and on Adam, which brought suffering into the human dynamic and experience ever since. And ultimately for those who won't turn, there is an eternal condemnation. And so we'll see over the next few weeks, God's judgment and His mercy. And they're all right there in Genesis 3. And there is only one way to turn around the fall. Only one way to redeem us from original sin and to change our hearts. And I'm going to let the Apostle Paul summarize that way as I'm closing today. He writes in 2 Thessalonians 1. And then there's a time in the future when He who suffered and died as a substitute bearing the wrath of God against our sins and God raised Him from the dead and He ascended, that Jesus will come again and be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. When Jesus comes on that day in order to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have There was a first Adam who plunged the human race into sin and judgment and destruction. And there is the second Adam who came from heaven. The second person of the Holy Trinity became a human being and represented us on a cross so that our sins be put away and represented us in His living so that we would be the righteousness of God forever. And so, the Scripture proclaims, for God, in the midst of this fallen world, so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son so that whoever will believe in Him. They won't perish. But they will have eternal life. Let's pray.
Oh, Father, You're good. I pray that this Gospel is heard by every soul here with supernatural ears in their hearts. That every one of us whom You have brought into the realm and the kingdom of Your Son would be awed infinitely more than Your creation of the Grand Canyon. Awed by Your Son who redeems us from such a peril. Who is our hope to be utterly free in the resurrection. Because You are absolutely trustworthy. Do it, O oh Father. Continue to work this sanctification in us, your people, to the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen.